You are listening to Pastor Mike Greiner of Harvest Community Church in Catanning, Pennsylvania. We pray that you will be challenged today as you listen to a sermon entitled, The Beautiful Invitation, recorded on May 8, 2016. For more information, check us out on the web at harvestpa.org. Let's join Pastor Mike as he preaches. We exist to increase the health and size of God's church everywhere. Uh, that is uh, why we exist. We're here to build the church. And over the next two years, we want to focus on four essential practices that lead a church to health. Not the only ones, but definitely building blocks, foundational issues, and that is prayer, evangelism, disciple-making, and stewardship. And right now, we're preaching through, I'm up to evangelism. Next week, start on discipleship. Um, so evangelism requires... I guess I could just yell at you and tell you how guilty you should feel because you didn't preach the gospel enough this week, but I'm not going to do that Um, because Christ has taken away our sin, and sometimes you've communicated the gospel in ways you don't even know and give yourself credit for, um, like inviting someone to an event or something. But rather, I'd rather you see the beauty of the gospel and want to share it. So, you know, evangelism requires an understanding of how good the good news is. Right? There's this one dude who's, who, who uh, this one musician who said he was talking to, he tried to share the good news. He says, I want to, he says, uh, hey, um, um, have you been born again? And the guy's like, well, no, not lately. <laughs> he goes, no, I mean, are you washed in the blood? And he goes, well, that's kind of gross. I don't, I don't think so. And he goes, no, where are you saved? Saved? Yeah. Well, once I uh, I was in a boat and I stood up and I fell on my friend. No, not that kind. I'm trying to tell you about justification and I'm trying I'm trying to tell you the good news. What good news? You're going to hell. (laughs) What's the bad news? (laughs) He says. The gospel is good news. So instead of me telling you how good it is, Isaiah chapter 55 is our text today. If you have your Bible, please open it. Open up your electronic or paper Bible to Isaiah 55. And there we will read the entire chapter and see that 700 years before Jesus was born, the Messiah and his salvation was described by a prophet. And that's Isaiah 55. We're going to read the whole thing. The chapter nicely divides into five parts. All right? So Isaiah 55. The whole thing, five parts. Ready? We're going to run through this. And I mean run. So put on your running shoes and your thinking cap. Part one, verses one and two, the invitation. Isaiah 55, verses one and two. The prophet stands and says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come, buy, and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money, without price. Why do you spend your money on that which is not bread? Why do you labor so hard for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me. Eat what is good. Delight yourself in rich food. I love that I'm dieting right now, so the idea of delighting myself in rich food. I just, 
It's a command of Scripture. Just go, oh, let the fat run down your beard. <laughs> Come, everyone who thirsts. Notice that what he's offering. Now, it, these, this, these are Israelites, these Jews he's talking to. And, they, and if you know where that is, you don't have to have been there to figure out it's desert. And so water is... It is the stuff of life. You must have water. And uh, he says, if you're thirsty, come. Uh, come, we have plenty. Don't worry about digging a well. Don't worry about finding a river out here or, no, or an oasis. Are you thirsty? Come and get water. N- necessary for life. But he ups the ante when he says, come buy wine and milk. Now, we take these things for granted because you can get anything in our grocery store. But in, a, in an agrarian culture where you have to produce whatever you have, Wine is the food of gladness. You know, wine is a luxury. Wine means somebody grew grapes. They took the grapes and they made them into wine. And so it it represents feasting and happiness and milk. You need an animal to make milk. When I was in India, we saw a very poor family that we visited in a very poor village. And one of the things that the guy showing us his family was very proud of was his cow. And they had like 25 people living in their house. And they said, and we have a cow. And he tells me, it gives us a quart of milk every day. And he was so proud of that, or a liter or whatever. I don't remember what he said. It gives them milk. That's his point. We have a cow. It gives us milk. Milk is good food. Now, I don't work for the dairy farmers, but protein, fat, carbohydrates, it's, it's the best food, and God gave it to us through animals as well as our moms, but eventually animals. And so when he says, come get water, wine, and milk, these are, these, are, these are things people work hard to make sure they have every day in a poor society like theirs. And he says, they're free. Oh, they're free. There's an invitation. Come get free stuff. You ever <laughs> vision of Walmart on Black Friday comes to me. <laughs> Just reduce price stuff, and people are there killing each other to get it. He says, "Don't don't mess with that stuff. Come to me." And he, and he he reasons with us in verse two. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for? That? Okay, so now he's he's changing the game. He's not really talking about water, wine, and milk, is he? He's talking about something more important. He's not because. Why do you spend your money for something I'm going to give you free? He, and why do you labor for that which does not satisfy? Well, I go to labor so I can buy the wine and the milk and the bread. So he's not really talking about wine and milk and bread, the things that satisfy my body, Cheetos and Big Macs, whatever it is you want to eat. He, he's saying, you, you, you're not satisfied Why do you work so hard, and at the end of the day, you are not satisfied? At the end of the week, you are not a fulfilled human being. At the end of the month, at the end of the year, at the end of your retirement dinner, at the end of your life, you have worked so hard. Why do you do that? Just to get bread that you put in your mouth, you eat, you swallow, you get old, and you die, and along the way, you never really found what you were looking for. Why do you do that? He's reasoning with us. The prophet is, and the prophet is speaking for God. That resonates well, I think. Man is the least satisfied creature on the planet, right? I I think 
that's an impossible statement to argue with. If, if you have an argument of a le- least satisfied creature, tell me. But for the most part, I, I don't know of any creature on the planet with more problems and a greater disability when it comes to trying to be happy than man. They, uh, mankind wanders around with a frown on his face, looking for stuff, buying stuff, trying to satisfy himself. And here's the God saying, you're trying with the wrong stuff. And that's exactly what we do. We go and we work really hard so we can get a lot of money so we can make monthly payments to get a thing. What's a thing? I don't know. Pick your thing. Your gym membership, your phone, your car, your house. Pick your thing. Whatever thing it is. You're making the monthly payments. You get the thing. You have the thing and the thing doesn't do it. I need another thing. Or they, doggone it, they upgraded my thing. Now I need to make more monthly payments to get the new thing. And God says, why do you do that? I have what you need. And then he says, and I give it away for free. He says, he ends verse 2 with, listen diligently to me. God is saying, stop! Stop running! Stop! Stop! You think you know what I'm saying. You don't. Stop! Stop! Listen! 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 Give me your eyes. Yeah, because they're Jews. They got the Bible. And yet they have to have a prophet that stands up and says, stop! Listen! Eat what's good! Delight yourself in the rich food I give you. Obviously, God gives us all the good, rich foods, but they are not the thing. They are the shadow of the thing. They are the picture of the thing that satisfies, right? So every time you have a nice, big, juicy steak, ice cream, chocolate, whatever works for you, think this isn't the thing. It's just a reminder. Jesus, when he was in the desert was hungry. Went 40 days without food. So the devil says, well, I'm going to go after that. He says, see those rocks over there? You're a son of God. Why don't you just change them into bread and start eating? You know, I'd change them into some kind of maple-covered cinnamon roll or something, but whatever. (laughs) If you can do anything. And Jesus said, man does not live by bread alone but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And that is a more profound statement than it may have first hit you as. Listen to what he said. Man doesn't live by the stuff he puts in his mouth. There is a bread that gives life. And it's every word that comes from the mouth of God. What if the food that satisfies the soul of mankind cannot be grown on the earth itself? See, Isaiah is speaking of the Messiah. We know that from a number of ways, one of which is Jesus knows Isaiah 55, and he echoes it in the New Testament in obvious ways. For example, John 7, 37, where he stands up in the midst of a feast where the the priests are celebrating the fact that God gives water to the city of Jerusalem, even if it's under siege by enemies. In the midst of that, he stands up, draws attention to himself in the temple on the last day of the feast, The great day Jesus cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He knows Isaiah 55 and he knows what he's saying. It's not this water these priests are thanking God for. I give the water that satisfies the soul. 
Or how about what he said to the Samaritan woman when he was at the well? And when you're sitting at a well in the desert, you want to drink of water. She's come to get water. He, he offers her better water. And he said to her, everyone who drinks of this water, he means the well, will be thirsty again. That's true. Yesterday's Gatorade doesn't do much in today's sun. But whoever drinks of the water I will give him will never be thirsty again. Well, he must be quenching something else beyond a dry, parched throat. For whoever drinks the water I will give will never be thirsty again. Last time, the water I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Now, that, that's pretty cool. If you could drink a glass of water that became a water fountain that didn't drown you, but was only there when you needed it. You'd never have to drink another glass of water. Well, I got this. I had a, I had a few years ago, I had a glass of water. I'm good. I need a drink? Here, I just press the button. Okay, I just had a drink. Water fountain works fine. Jesus was talking about the Holy Spirit. If you receive the words of Christ, you receive the Holy Spirit yourself, himself. And that is God himself. This is too profound to, to say out loud almost um, from a human, I think. An angel should say this because it, it doesn't land right. He is saying that if you receive me, you're going to drink God. And you think, well, that, you're just pushing this figure too far. I am not. <laughs> That's the figure he's using. And, and, and that means that what you are really thirsty for as a human being, unlike all the other creatures on the planet, is God. What you think the new car will satisfy, it won't. What you think that many of the things you think will satisfy this need for God actually enslave you. That's all addiction is. Addiction to drugs, addiction to gambling, addiction to greed, addiction to power, addiction to sex. All you're doing is saying, I need God, this ought to do it. But you don't realize that you're saying, I need God. But that's what you're thirsty for. You're thirsty for God. And Jesus says, here I am, take a drink. He uses bread also. Let's uh, look at John 6. Jesus says, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven. It's not the, the bread you're going to eat today at lunch. It's, it's the one. Well, who is he? That's a person who comes down from heaven. That's Jesus. He's the only human whose soul didn't start here. Your soul started with mommy and daddy. So did mine. God works it out that we have a beginning. Jesus, no. He was always there, and he came down from heaven. He is the bread of God. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. Now, they were missing it. They thought it was like manna from heaven, manna from the sky, free Twinkies every day. He said, no, no, no. You don't know what you're asking for. Jesus said to them plainly, I am the bread. You're looking at the bread of life. Whoever comes to me is not going to hunger. Do you see he's using the same pictures over and over in the same picture we have in Isaiah 55? Think of yourself or think of another person who you know is spiritually hungry. You don't need bread and you don't need water. See, I do or I'll die. (laughs) 
You're going to die even if you have bread and water, but you need the bread and water that is Christ. You need that or you will not live. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Soul food, baby. He feeds a soul. In the 70s, they had a thing called soul. It went away. Went away. Disco ate it and rap took it over. But there was a while there was something called soul. Somewhere between Motown and disco was soul. (laughs) Google it, young folk. And there was something called soul food. And I, I, I don't hear any soul food places anymore. You can go downtown to some nasty part of a city. It's normally you had to go, but there'd be a soul food place. Well, the only real soul food is Jesus. And, he's, and the best of all, is free. He who has no money, come buy and eat. The rich don't get in line first. Nor do they get in line last. Anyone can have Christ. So when Messiah comes, he calls out to the world with this invitation, which he would 700 years after the prophet said this, Jesus would come walking the earth and he'd say, here I am, come get it, free! Part two of our Isaiah 55 is verse three to five, and that is the promised Savior is the Savior of the nations. He's not just this... He, the Savior of Israel. Now that is so common to us today, but you've got to remember the Jews are God's chosen people. Their Messiah is coming to save them. Still to this day, you have very serious Jews dressed in black, wearing hats, standing in front of the wall in Jerusalem, praying their holy words, hoping for the Messiah who will come to rescue Jews. And they're not out of line with the people who planted our church back in A.D. 33. That's what people thought. Coming for the Jews, but 700 years before Christ, the secret was already in the scripture. He's coming for the whole nation. Incline your ear. Come to me. Hear that your soul may live. I love that line. Hear that your soul may live. How do you get your soul to live? Listen. Hear. We never get away from faith being the way of salvation. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the words of Christ. Listen and your soul will live. Because that's how you eat it. That's how you eat it. This is where the Roman church makes the mistake of thinking that somehow you have to change an actual piece of bread into a body and eat it to get grace. They're missing the simple metaphor. Eating and drinking is hearing and believing. Hear that your soul may live. And I will make an everlasting covenant with you, an everlasting covenant my steadfast, sure love for David. Now, this may be uh, confusing. What's he talking about? He, he's, he's invited me to come. I'm listening. I want the food. I want the wine. I want the milk. Give it to me. I'm ready to have the bread that I can eat that I'm never hungry again. What? And now you're saying you're going to make an everlasting covenant. That sounds good. What is that? And steadfast, sure love. That sounds good, too. What is that? And then you throw in David. Who's that? Well, David was the great king of Israel. And God made a promise to David while he was living. And he said, "Uh, you will never lack a king upon the throne. And he meant from his lineage. And that your your dynasty, your rule will be an everlasting rule. means forever. Well, how can a man have an everlasting rule? Every man dies. Well, it just so happens that Mary, the mother of Jesus, is a granddaughter of David. And his stepdad, Joseph, is a grandson 
So there's the rightful heir of, the ki- of, of David. A thousand years after David comes Jesus, a son of David, and the rightful king. And since he never dies, his rule is everlasting. This is a promise of the Messiah. Verse 4, he continues and talks about that Messiah. Behold, I made him a witness to the people, a leader and commander for the peoples. At this point, you think, is he talking about David or is he talking about the steadfast, everlasting covenant guy, the Messiah? He's moving to the Messiah. Because he goes to the future and says, you shall call a nation that you do not know. David's not going to call a nation that he does not know. It's going to be the Messiah, his son, Jesus And a nation that did not know you shall run to you. Because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, He has glorified you. It was Jesus who stood before, on the days He was arrested and said, that (laughs) He said to the Father, glorify me. And the Father's voice comes from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. He was, it was always It was always the plan that Messiah would come and God would glorify him by sending him to a cross, having him die and on the third day raise again by paying for the sins of the world and resurrecting, beating death not for humanity because he resurrected in a human body that was glorified and then he ascended to heaven which is glorious so he's in the glory of heaven forever where he sits at the right hand of God and from which he will come again. He glorified you. But notice that he comes for a nation you did not know. That means non-Jews. That's what that means. Non-Jews are going to come to him. Why? Because Jesus didn't die just for the sins of Israel. He died for the sins of the whole world. And that's good news in our campuses because there's not a lot of Jews sitting around here. So it's good news for you. So here's the invitation. Come and get it. It's free. The God of the Jews, who is the God, has spilled out his salvation from his nation to the whole planet through the man Christ Jesus who stands and says, if you're thirsty, come. If you're hungry, come. I will give you soul-satisfying life that lives forever. I will give you God in you. That's what you're hungry for. And you might say, well, I want that true life then you must respond. Well, how do you respond? Well, every invitation has some way of responding. The most formal have an RSVP. So that's what part three is. Verse six and seven we need is to RSVP. RSVP, you ever open a... You don't have to do it. People get more creative now in the computer age, and so it's getting simpler. But I'll tell you what, there was a time. I'd I'd get a a packet about that thick, an envelope about that thick in in the mailbox, and I'd, I'd always give it to my wife because it was always formally written to Mr. and Mrs. And um, if it's that thick, you know what it is. It's a wedding invitation. There's like 18 pieces of paper in there. <laughs> and a guy just has not got the time to figure that stuff out. You start pulling stuff out. What do I do with this? What do I do with this? What do I do with this? My, the wife is like, at least mine is, stop it, honey. We need those. What for? Well, that card you put in this envelope, you send that back, and this, you write all this. called an RSVP. Well, you got to RSVP God. There's the invitation. But you got to respond. Verse 6 and 7. 
Here's your RSVP. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way. Let him push his way aside. He's hearing an invitation. Push that wickedness aside. And the unrighteous man, put down those wicked thoughts. Let him return to the Lord. And by the way, everyone who responds to the Lord is returning. Ever since Granddaddy Adam and Grandma Eve blew it, all their little offspring come out sinners. And if you give them enough time, when they know right from wrong, they will prove to you they are sinners. And they is me, and they is you, and they is we, and we are sinners. So there is no way to respond to his invitation without this part. Forsake your ways that are wicked. Forsake your thoughts. And return. Come back to the Father of all mankind. Well, he's not going to like me. <laughs> we already established I'm wicked. I, I, you know, I, we've already established that I have wicked thoughts. Well, here's, here's the thing about him. That he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will. He won't just pardon you. He will abundantly pardon you. I don't even know what that looks like. If I do something wrong to someone, and at times I do. And if I have the good sense and humility, and at times I do, to say I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done that, I expect him to like forgive me, but slowly. Don't you? Let me off the hook, but a little at a time, just out of respect for what I did wrong. You know, I hurt you bad. You ain't got to let this go too fast. You can hold on to it for a second. I should be mad. I get you. You should be mad. That was rotten to me. But you know... I guess we all make mistakes. Yeah, we all make mistakes. You know, I expect you to work up to it. Oh, okay, I forgive you. Or if it's really bad, but I'm going to be hurt for a little while. I understand. That isn't this. For he will abundantly pardon. Jesus, this is really bad. Forgiven. But then what's abundant? I forgive the heck out of it. I don't even know what that looks like. I don't know how to explain abundantly pardon. Whatever it is, it's good. I've forgiven the heck out of that. <laughs> you're so forgiven. You're so, you, you're just super forgiven. Yeah, it's awesome. So how do you RSVP? How do you send the envelope back? It's right there. Verse six, seek the Lord. Call upon him. Turn from your wicked ways. Seek. You've got to look for him. He's there, but now seek him while he may be found. There's a little bit of a threat in there. It should give you some urgency. Seek now because one day he's not going to allow himself to be sought by you. So if you're hearing this message now, and that goes for anyone who's hearing me talk now, but as you Christians bring this message to the world... You, you may not realize it, but you are giving the right now moment to another soul. Maybe the only right now moment they get where God is really going to talk to them. You say, through me? Yes, through you. He talked through Isaiah. And you're giving them a right now moment. That's why the time is now. 
It's, there's an urgency. If you are hearing this message, now is the time. That is a theme in the Bible carried on into the New Testament. Where the New Testament writer says, now is the time of salvation. So seek him now. Don't put it off. There's people say, well, I'll look for him later. I got time. I got a brother. He's one of those religious dudes. But I saw him live like Satan for 20 years. Then he finally gave in. I'll live like Satan for another 10. Then I'll give in. I'll look for him later. I had a conversation with, with a family member years ago after I got saved. He literally told me, That's, I think you're right. That sounds good. But you know what? You have a wife. You have a girl. I think I don't know if I was married yet. He said, I didn't have a girlfriend. I think I got to get that in order first. 30 years have gone by. He still hasn't come. He may never. Seek the Lord while he may be found. The day will come when this invitation is revoked. Not because God starts being mean, but the event for which you were invited has come and gone. If you die, too late. If he returns, too late. Time is now. And each must repent. You see, God is willing to take anybody. But here's the truth. And you've seen it. You've experienced it. You lived it. People can hear a great invitation and devalue it. I don't want to go. That's your cousin Marge, ain't it? I don't want to go to that wedding. That's not very nice. Spent a lot of money on that wedding. I don't want to go. Oh, that's the governor of the state. I don't want to go to his wedding. You know, that's, that's the king. I don't want to go to his wedding. You can devalue something very valuable. Well, when God from heaven speaks and says, come, there's people who all the time just practically make that a foot mat and put it down. Yeah, whatever. Happens all the time. You've seen it, right? Perhaps you did it. Jesus knows this, and that's why he gives this parable in the New Testament. He says, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. By the way, if you live in a kingdom that has a king, it's a big deal. And if he has a wedding feast for his son, the future king, it's the biggest deal. And if you do not go, it's an insult to the king who can kill you because he's the king. And he sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast. But get this, they would not come. I sent Isaiah. I sent the apostles. I sent that neighbor of yours who told you all about me. Again, he sent other servants. He did it twice, saying, tell those who are invited. See, I have prepared my dinner. My ox and my fat calf have been slaughtered. Everything's ready. This is going to be a good, a really good meal. This is rich food. Come and delight yourself. Eat. Why do you waste your time with that which doesn't satisfy? Look what I have for you. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention. They went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. He said, I do my thing. As one person has said, God wants me. God can take a number and I'll pencil them in. I'm going to my farm, going to my business. And if you keep talking to me, I'm going to punch you in the face. Or legislate against you. I'll treat you shamefully. 
The king was angry. He sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. The ultimate epitaph on that, Jesus says, for many are called, but few are chosen. Instead of receiving the great invitation, people, these people in this parable continue to do evil and run their own lives their own way. Many trip over the invitation of Jesus to be saved. <laughs> Many devalue it. He's reasoning with us. Don't! And some say, well, look, the cross, there's, there's a couple reasons why people won't take the cross beyond just that they're busy. One, they think this is too easy. Their pride says it's too easy. I, I'm not as bad as those people are over there. And if this is true, we both get in under the same rule. It's not really fair. I'm not really getting the credit I've earned. It's too easy. Just believe some words. That's it. The other thing people trip over is the fact that there's a cross involved. They think it's shameful and stupid. What do, you, what do you mean? God became a man. That, okay, that's freaky enough, but let's say I, I go with you on that. But that he allowed himself to be stripped naked and killed on a cross for some bloody ancient ritual of paying for sins? Really? A cross is a stumbling block. And they intellectually throw it out. The Muslims religiously throw it out. They say, well... Jesus must have been a great prophet. There's no way he died. That was an illusion. The cross is a stumbling block. But to, to all who stumble over Christ, I, I have, uh, not from God, from me, my own way of responding is saying, quit being shocked that God's ways blow your mind. He's not... I mean, we have tiny little craniums with tiny little brains that he made. We're so impressed with our thoughts. We're so smart. I was listening to this very smart neurosurgeon in an audio book talking about how... It's funny how whenever she would talk about how our brains became what they are, she said, nature, in her wisdom, decided that... Like, who's nature in her wisdom deciding? You're so smart. You're stupid. I mean, that's stupid right there. Inanimate objects, inanimate nothings, deciding what my... God's ways are mind-blowing, and that's part four. Verse 8 to 11 is praise for the wonder of God, or praise for God's salvation. If you read through the book of Romans where Paul lays out salvation like no one else ever does in the whole Bible, with all that great theological truth, by the time he gets to the end of chapter uh, 8, he can't contain himself. He's just like, hey, who can imagine the mind of God? This dude's amazing. Not dude, God's amazing. Hallelujah, amen, he's praising. That's where we should end up. This is amazing stuff, and that's where this goes. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declare the Lord. I save the whole world, not just Israel. I save you with words. I save you by just coming. Hear me and be saved. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. My thoughts higher than your thoughts. The maker of snowflakes and fingerprints, baby. You think you're special because you got your own fingerprints and snowflakes are special because everyone's different. But think about the one who made them. I think he's special. The maker of supernovas and electrons. Is he smarter than me? Let's go with probably. 
Just because a person can't understand how salvation works doesn't mean it isn't true. The smartest people in the world think Jesus and his invitation are foolish. Now, I'm not trying to insult you saying none of you are the smartest people in the world. Many of you are very intelligent. But I know for a fact, I don't care how many degrees you have, the moment you said Christ is your Savior, the people who consider themselves the smartest people in the world thought you left the reservation. But you know what Paul said? For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. This message that Christ dies for sinners, that he pays for our sins, that he raises from the dead, defeating, not only paying for our sins, but defeating death that was part of our body. This message, when proclaimed in any age at any time, has the power to take people out of death into life. There is not a greater power that anyone wields in the world, including, yes, including the atom bomb. Because all the atom bomb can do is bring people to the place they were going anyway. No atom bombs, death rate is still 100%. They still all die. Only this message, we call it the gospel, has the power to... Give someone eternal life by making the dead alive. So they can call foolish all they want. This is why you might have figured out that all I ever do is repeat myself. If you've been in this church for a while, you're saying he says the same verses over and over and over. And I do that on purpose for two reasons. (laughs) One, to learn is to remember. But two, I only know a few things. Because only a few things matter. And so that is why in this secular age, people are like, what are we going to do? Everything's going crazy. Everything's going secular. I've never seen anything like this. My friends, no matter what age we talk, fashion, everything goes out of fashion. right? Clothes go out of fashion. We don't tuck in our shirts now. It took my wife at least four years after everyone else stopped tucking it in until I stopped tucking it in. And I'll figure it out after they start tucking them in again a couple years too late. Everything goes out of fashion. And ladies, yoga pants couldn't go out too fast. (laughs) Uh, In in all seriousness, I am thankful for Christian ladies who have some dignity and realize that you shouldn't walk around in stuff that looks like you painted it on for it causes men to stumble And a lot of women don't look good in it anyway. (laughs) Hopefully it'll go out of fashion. It will. But the gospel is timeless. It's always hated by those who are in vogue. There's always Christians wanting to compromise, saying, we got to change this message for the people of today. That was the same way in 33 AD. It's never been in with the in crowd, but it's always been the power that saves souls like yours and mine. That's why we're here. And that is why I repeat this verse all the time. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, but also to the Greek. 
God's word. Just believe in a message? Yes. Look at verse 10 and 11. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower, bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes from my mouth. It's like rain. It shall not return to me empty. It shall accomplish what I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. God sends rain to bring life to dead fields. He sends his word to bring life to dead souls. And it is powerful to accomplish what he sends it to do. You were Ephesians 2. You were dead. That is your spiritual state apart from Christ. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were dead. You needed life. You were hungry because you had no life in which you formerly walked according to the course of the world, according to the prince of the power of the air. That's the devil, the spirit that now works in the sons of disobedience. But God, being rich in mercy, because of, motivated by, because of, motivated by, His great love. His great love. Not His great condemnation. Not His great judgment. His great affection desiring for your good with which he loved us even when we were dead made us alive with Christ by grace you have been saved you see the promise of the Messiah is salvation for sinners in Isaiah 55 played out right in front of us in the New Testament and the last part of our chapter is the complete healing of all things It's too little of a thing that God just saves human souls. You know, he made an earth for us. The earth was made for us. We weren't made for the earth. We didn't come out of the primordial sludge. That's the modern thinking. We're just, we're like, uh, man comes last. He's the disease that kills the earth. You know, that's us. Bambi started it, I think, that movie Bambi. I was a little kid, I watched Bambi, right? Here's Bambi, talking deer, cool. Little does he know that his name will be shared by women and strippers forever afterwards. I mean, he's a big, giant guy in this. (laughs) What happened there, right? Bambi's a dude. (laughs) Fawn, I love old Fawn, and I'm happy, then... Then first thing you hear is, man is in the forest. Boom, mom gets killed and the whole place is on fire. That's what started it. (laughs) But don't listen to Bambi, the movie. The world was made for us. But when we fell as lords of the earth by God's giving us dominion, the earth fell too. But he's going to reverse that. And that we see a picture of at the end of this chapter where He says, for you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains, and this is anthropomorphic language. In other words, it's language where physical things act like living things. But but it goes farther. We have promises in the scripture that all of creation will be redeemed. The mountains and the hills shall break forth into singing. They won't actually probably sing, but sin will be leaving them. You know right now you can't put a black walnut near apple trees, right? I didn't. I have all these apple trees up on my hill. I didn't plant them. 
But there's a black walnut there too, and it's killing all my apples. I had no idea. Did you know that? The apples come out and they got this crud all over them. They don't get along. You think trees, you think people fight. Trees fight. They're out there fighting in my field. Apples are losing. But in this language, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Trees don't have hands. But the healing of the man through Christ becomes the healing of the nations, becomes the healing of the world, becomes the healing of the universe. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. This has to take us back to Genesis when God cursed man at the fall and said, from now on, thorns and thistles. Where before, you didn't have that. Now they're gone. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. And it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. This is the destiny of earth, salvation for earth. There will be a new earth, a renewed earth, a forever earth. You and I will live forever in a body, in a place. And it's going to be saved and renewed and awesome. The gospel doesn't end at the cross. Jesus died. He raised. He ascended. He sits at the right hand of God. He comes again and he makes all things new. That's where the gospel ends or, let's say, begins. Here's the question. One day all evil will be gone. All those things that stress you out will not be there. All sadness, all sorrow. Think about it. Anything that makes you anxious, anything difficult, anything painful, anything gone. All of it. You say, well, he's going to kill all these awful people I know? No. Well, he might. Some of them. But the awful people you know who believe in him will be transformed and they will have no awful in them. They'll be incapable of annoying you and you, them. The day is coming when all evil is gone. It's coming. It's coming. Mankind's trying to bring... Utopian politics is big these days. Everyone now, they don't want political leaders. They want a savior. If only they knew the Latin of utopia. It means no place. The joke's on you. None of them are going to save you. But they want utopia. One day it comes when Jesus comes back. Here's the question. Here is the question. Will you be alive and among the living and there... That's the gospel question. In order to get there, there's only one door, and it's not a big door, it's a small door, and the door's name is Jesus. You must believe in the Savior, for he is the only one who did what was necessary to save you, and that is die on a cross for your sins. You must believe in Christ. There's no other way. Oh, this isn't popular out in 2000 and whatever year it is. But it wasn't popular in 19 whatever or 18 or 17 or 15 or 33 AD. It's never been popular, but it's always been true. There is no other way except through Christ who says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. Will you be there? And for those of you who will be there, isn't this good news? Spread it. There's more to talk about than all the things you're ticked off about on political radio. You're not changing anything anyway. You're going to go vote, and that's it. That's all you're going to do. So why not get your head out of that crud and put your head in what you know the king. You don't have to vote. He's going to win, and you get to be his citizens. Spread the word. 
If you're not sure you're there, what should you do? Seek him now. Not tomorrow, now. Today is the day to find Christ. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Harvest Community Church. We invite you to join us at any one of our four campuses located in Catanning, Petrolia Valley, Indiana, and Freeport. For more information, check us out on the web at harvestpa.org.